This is just a little note that today's episode contains some stronger adult language. So if you're listening to this at work or in your car with some kids, you may want to throw on some headphones. All right. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Long Finish. I am your host, Tug Coker, and I'm here as always with my wife and co-host, Catherine Weil Coker. How are you doing tonight, Kat? I'm great. How are you? Really good. This is it, folks. It's episode 94 of The Long Finish. Wow. Kidding. Produce it while uh, kids are asleep. Done this 93 times, now this makes 94, and this is it. I've talked about having some guests on the show. We've had a, a few guests on the show It's been so really fun. Some, some fun, yep. fun guests, and we have a new one tonight. Catherine, who are we having on the show tonight? We are so excited, really, to have one of the most impactful people in the L.A. wine scene in the last 15 years, none other than Matthew Kaner. Matthew was the founder, owner of Bar Covell on the east side of LA. At one point, they had 150 wines by the glass, no wine list, truly an incredible wine bar in the United States and really like put LA on the map for wine, I think. In 2013, he was named one of Food and Wine Psalms of the Year. In 2015, he opened another wine bar, Augustine Wine Bar in Sherman Oaks. Also, so many accolades there. It was named Best Wine Bar by Food and Wine Magazine. In 2019, he was one of Wine Enthusiast Magazine's 40 under 40 tastemakers. He's been a host and producer for Psalm TV. And now he's the CEO and owner of his own wine consulting company, Will Travel for Wine. He represents a couple of different regions and producers in wine. And it was so fun to talk to him. We reconnected because he is working for a company called Proxies, a non-alcoholic wine swine adjacent product and he came to pour that at our January tasting at Esther's which was a really well attended tasting super fun and he and I reconnected and I was like wow you've done so many cool things in LA so many different things in wine let's talk about it and he's like sure I'll do it we came over to our townhouse after we put the kids down and we broke bread we drank some proxies also may have tasted some wine from Alsace, and then we taped for almost two hours. And then we hung out. And we hung out. Let's just say it was a really long Sunday night. And he is as eloquent as he is on this podcast. He's also that much fun. And we just all sat around, had a great time together. It was so interesting, the conversation, that I'm breaking this interview into two episodes. So the first episode tonight is going to be Matthew's journey in wine. And Catherine and Matthew... Two food and wine psalms of the year getting together, talking wine, me being some pedestrian fly on the wall, trying to make sure the conversation steered in the right place. But his, his journey is interesting. His passions for wine, his stories about opening wine bars is interesting to us as owners of a wine bar. Lots of great stories. And then next week, we will play part two, which is him talking about his latest movements in the food and wine world, which includes proxies 
uh, a non-alk alternative, which is all the rage. That industry, as it's you know, Catherine, going off right now. Booming. And that's what we drank, which was great because it was Sunday night. Yeah. For me, it was so fun to talk to him because there are people in the industry I know or see at tastings or colleagues around over the years, but it's not that often you get to have them at your house and sit down and talk and ask them those questions you really want to ask over hours, you know? So for me, it was a true delight. We hope you enjoy the conversation as much as we did. Without further ado, here's Matthew Kaner. I was so excited to hear that you were involved with the tasting at Esther's. First of all, to get you over to the west side. <laughs> I know that you're not over the west side very much. So to get you over to Esther's was a thrill for us. Thank you. I actually go there when I'm looking for a glass of wine on the west side. Anyone who ever wants to hang, I go to Esther's. I don't tell you as often as I go. Well, thanks. You know, it's great to hear it now. Now yeah. it's documented. Yep. It's yeah. on record. Now you know. On, on the podcast. We'll be on the lookout. We have well, our spies. I'm not that person who's like, hey, you working tonight? Uh, and I'm not going to go if, unless you're there. Like, I, I just rather go support you. That is nice of you. I don't know how people feel about that because sometimes people text me when they're there. I'm like, why didn't you tell me? I could have. I could Also, like, am I supposed to leave my house now in the middle <laughs> of what I'm doing and go there? You know, I also could have made it better for you. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know how to handle those texts. Yeah, uh, you, it's you, tough. It's hard. And the thing I learned when I had four places at one time, if someone's like, hey, are you at Covell tonight? And I was going to be in Sherman Oaks or I was going to be in Atwater. And the answer was no. It's better not to say no or not to respond because then they're just not going to go. And let's be honest, we need the business. Right, right. Yeah. Later in the night, you're like, oh, sorry, I missed you. I hope it was awesome. (laughs) Or, hey, I could be there at 1030 on my way home. Are you still going to be there? And they're like, we're going at 540. Never mind. Yeah, the 540 (laughs) one's a tough one. Never mind. So there's so much to discuss with you, but I want to start at the, really at the beginning, I asked this question to all of our guests, which is, what was your relationship or your family's relationship to wine and beverage growing up? How, how do you remember yeah. wine in your house? So my father will drink a glass of red wine. He especially likes Merlot. He's the one person that Sideways did not fuck up. He's the one. Good for him. Still asks, he's like, do you have any Merlot? I'm like, yeah, sure. Uh, My mom is not a big drinker, but she likes Riesling. And I'm a big Riesling guy. So I don't think I got it from her, but that's cool that we connected on that. But they don't drink really. Neither of them, they they don't travel for wine. They don't go out and look it up. They're in Santa Barbara where I grew up and they don't even go to the vineyards. That said, they respect it and like it and are thankful that Santa Barbara is on the map for it, but it's not really part of their everyday or really their, it's not a passionate thing for them. They're thankful that that's what I do and they will taste and learn accordingly, but I grew up basically not really with drinking in my house. There was a bottle or two of like Jack Daniels and Chivas Regal and like a vodka bottle. And as a kid, I actually had this talk with my sister over the holidays. I was the young daft son who just drank the liquor and not replace it. And my sister was the one who's like, they're going to find out. I better put water in there. And I'm like, what are they going to do? You don't drink. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. (laughs) So like drinking wasn't a thing in our house. Not really. But I remember I first got drunk at seven. I stole a glass of champagne at a wedding and we had to leave because I started vomiting uncontrollably oh my gosh oh my goodness yeah yeah so i started young you know from santa barbara that's what you do (laughs) yeah set the table young we have that question as well my parents didn't drink when i was growing up either but now that all the kids are out of the house they're always having some glass of wine or or a makers and ginger ale or something so good for them similar to you but do you growing up in santa barbara you know wine is sort of in the fabric for a lot of people's lives there is that how you made your way into the wine world or what were some of your footsteps into the wine world? Yeah. So wine was at, you know, in my childhood, for instance, it wasn't as popular then 
I grew up in, we moved to Santa Barbara in 1987. I was four. By the time I was in college, it was a thing. People knew it then. But, you know, as I'm like elementary school, junior high, high school age, it was gaining momentum. But really, I mean, I made a joke about Sideways, but Sideways is what really put it on the map. There were important things happening in Santa Maria Valley and Santa Inez, and they were trying to figure out what grapes do best at what elements and you know angles of the the different valleys but like so many ABAs we have today were not there yet and some of the pioneers had not really done their best work yet i mean i can get geeky on it but santa barbara came into its own to the world not the insular what they all knew they knew the prowess but to the world it came out in the late 90s early 2000s and at that point i was going to college you know i went to UCSB stayed in town and what I remember from my childhood was driving north up to like Lompoc, San Inez, Santa Maria, uh, Solvang, wherever. And I remember staring at grapevines and just being mesmerized by that little effect that happens when, you know, you see the light and the break in the rose. And like my parents didn't stop and go wine tasting. We just would go where we were headed or like go to a friend's house and maybe they'd open a bottle of wine. But I was obsessed with the vineyard thing, that, that little row passage. And that's what stuck with me until I made a close friend in college whose dad was a wine collector from the LA area, Agora Hills. And he just decided us 19, 20 year olds were going to get a good introduction to fine wine. He was opening like mid fifties, Claude Alambre Grand Cruz, and he was opening Cristal from the seventies. And he was giving us Armagnac from the 19th century and Sepultsfield Australian port style wine from the early 1900s. It blew my mind because I knew enough to know that that was insane and not what I was normally drinking but I didn't really know what I was doing. So he inspired me. And I've got a whole way I can say this. I was trying to be a musician. I was going to school full time and then wine fell in my lap and I was like, oh, this is different. So he inspired me to stop trying to be a restaurant guy. And I, I managed a restaurant. I was still pursuing music, but he inspired me to get a job in the wine world. And that it, everything changed. That's my line in the sand moment. 2005, June, I quit my restaurant job. I go work in the wine store at the wine cask and everything is different after that moment. What instruments do you play? I play the guitar and I sing. Oh, amazing. Write songs. Yeah, I used to do it to rooms full of people or to the wall or whatever. I still well, can do it. You can come downstairs with us. He'll get on the guitar. I'll get well, on the no, piano. No, he can, we'll get the, he'll, he can get on the guitar. He doesn't need me. <laughs> yeah. Sure. You know. That'd be good. I love it. Let's do it. <laughs> do you ever open any of these places with the idea that like we're going to have live music in mind and I'm going to be playing it in my own places? Never in LA, no. Um, my partner's in Augustine. Dustin, who we talked before we got on tape, uh, he's from Oklahoma. He's not a musician, but he loves music. Our third partner, Dave Gibbs, is a lifelong musician, songwriter. And so he was in a band that was called Gigolo Aunts, Gigolo Ants, from uh, upstate New York. And Depending on where you're Boston. from. Yeah. <laughs> are you British or are you pretending to be British? Um, and like they would open for bands like Counting Crows and they would open for the Pixies. And they, they I think they formed in Boston, but they were all from upstate New York. So they have this like multiple history thing. And Dave is an encyclopedic person in general. Like he can tell you everything about a certain jean company or like women's shoes that he loves, but he has this encyclopedic mind for wine and for music and especially for wine. And that's how we connected other than the music thing. But Dave, we opened Augustine knowing we weren't going to have live music, but that like Adam Duritz might show up one night. So he insisted on us having a piano just in case. So when Adam would come like once a year, he'd play for everyone. Incredible. But we didn't do live music. No, there's been really no live music other than when Covell opened the private party room. People then would ask, can I do a showcase? Can I have a this? Can I have a that? I never once have played live music at any of my old wine bar restaurants. Not one time. 
we don't have live music at Esther's no. either. People ask us a lot to do that, but we still steer clear of that. I have my own opinions on that, so I, I, I kind of... I love live music, but when you have someone who's not amazing, <laughs> it literally <laughs> sort of turns yep. the mood down. <laughs> and to tell someone, hey, uh, you're not amazing. Yeah. <laughs> you're yeah. enjoyable half the time. Yeah. Like It just doesn't work. Can't we don't want to crush people's dreams no. in the middle of their set. No. So we, we steer clear from that. But No yeah. open mics. No open mics. Exactly. No, no, no bringers. Yeah. No open mics. Save it for the coffee shop. You talk yeah. about your, your college experience and the 2005 breaking point. Mm-hmm. Question about UCSB. Is there wine... Studies there at a school that is, I mean, I'm sure you weren't a part of that, right? But Yeah, it's a good question. Yeah. Unlike Davis or Cal Poly um, San Luis Obispo or a- even Allen Hancock College in Santa Maria, where they have viticultural classes, you can learn to be a viticulturalist, you can learn the chemistry and become a winemaker like that. UC Santa Barbara, they have serious strengths. I mean, they've people there have won Nobel Peace Prizes and things in physics and other areas. For the wine, they have like a wine tasting class. Literally a wine. And they will have you in the big hall and it's like 500 kids to start and then everyone thinks they're just going to taste wine. Obviously, you don't just do that. And you actually have to learn and pass the knowledge back and whatever. And then they do go up to San Inez if you're over 21. I never took that class. I actually don't remember even hearing about it until years later. Someone would be like, oh, you went to UCSB? So did I. Did you take the wine tasting class? And I'm like, fuck you. I was a poli-sci major. No, I didn't. (laughs) I was learning how to hate the world through politics instead. Once that 2005 moment happened for you, how did you seek out more ways to learn about wine? It's a great question. So I got a job at a world-famous wine store that had a fine dining restaurant with a grand award-winning wine list from the Wine Spectator and a wine bar that every winemaker would come hang out in when they were in town. I got to learn a lot quickly. Every winemaker wanted our wine buyer to take an appointment, put the wine on the wine list, whatever. That was like people from anywhere in the world wanted that. So we got to meet people from everywhere. And me being this punk kid, I had a big beard and a bunch of shaggy hair. I was like, you know, guitar player guy. And I'd show up stoned every day, every day, every day. And no one who worked there thought I should work there until they got to know me. They're like, oh, he's not so bad. They all were just like, you're not the aesthetic we normally have here. They were very buttoned up and, you know, very... 2005 wine where everything's like mm. you know Tastavan and uh, like they weren't wearing Tastavans but so polished yeah too yeah. British about it almost and so what I realized was this was a world where I was constantly going to be learning every day if I was willing to there's so much in front of us that some people I think think it's too much or it's daunting instead what I chose to do is say I'm going to just focus on whatever I can ask questions find some sort of passion and then just deep dive on whatever gets my attention and I told the story recently and it's I don't know if it's famous for me but it was how I realized like I'm in the right place I kind of faked it till I made it to get this job I said what I had to say from my wine collector friend uh, who's my friend's dad. He taught me enough that I could basically get a job. And then I had to actually show up and do the work, right? Day one, I show up in this wine store with an entire room of Burgundy and it was all arranged north to south. Cote de Nuit, Cote de Bonne. I had just been basically tasked with 50 cases arrived the day before and they say, or the, the boss says, all these wines that just arrived from multiple producers from wherever they're from, we need you to integrate them into the shop in the way that it's all organized from north to south. That's enough of a job now. (laughs) And the north to south, to be fair, was sub-organized AOC, Premier Crew, Grand Crew. And I knew what the word Grand Crew was, the, the words, I knew the phrase, I knew the phrase Premier Crew. Did I know that a Grand Crew could be 
$2,000 and a premier crew could be $300 and the AOC wine could be $50 to $80? Maybe not, but I was about to find out. And I quickly realized nuance and little details in wine could change everything. It was a quick learning and I, I passed with flying colors. I don't know if it was a test, but I passed. And from there on, I was like, throw me any any challenge, I can figure it out. And it just, it made me pay attention. It made me ask questions. It made me look for nuance and look for small little details. And yeah, that was, that was day one. That is a test. I mean, especially you think about like, that's before everyone can look up all their stuff on their phone. You know, Mm -hmm. like now these days you could expect someone to do that with X amount of time, but like, that's a big job. The thing we had that a lot of places did not have was we had a subscription to the um, to Robert Parker's what you know whatever his website the Wine Advocate I guess and it had because especially with Burgundy I think also we followed Alan Meadows back then too big for Burgundy yeah but both of them had cataloged basically all the important producers in Burgundy specifically and I was able if I really had questions to go there other than that you Google whatever it was and you might find their website but like the french were so resistant to getting websites and instagram they're still not all on instagram you know it's so yeah you're exactly right it's crazy that's really cool but that it is a great test Uh, hopefully that is they you know put that for other people too it's a great way to see if they should work in the shop the wine shop's not there anymore but maybe they did after that when they it's a good separator for sure (laughs) and it was like fifty thousand sixty thousand dollars worth of inventory that came in maybe more 50, at least 50 cases. If you told me to put a new person on doing that, uh, I would like have a heart attack. Yeah, I know, right? I see the anxiety in you. I'm like, no way, not that. It's not a visual podcast, but I can tell you the anxiety ridden by yes. this. Yes. Feel the anxiety. So once you cross that test and you felt like you belonged in this world, this is something that you two share. You both, I read on your website, you have a real strong sense of smell. Catherine's is the same thing. I mean, do you ever feel like, maybe this is a question for you, Catherine, but like, are you walking into some sort of, I belong in this, doing this because of supernatural things that I have, things that are different than maybe most people. Do you ever think about that? Like the fact that your sense of smell might be out of the ordinary or are you, Catherine? Well, I certainly never thought that. I never thought it was a thing at all until entering the wine world. And then once I started wine tasting, I was around all these people who would like been practicing their tasting for so long it was like whoa wait okay you go from people not paying attention at all to smells during the day to people who are so hyper aware and sensitive and can name things it was really only when I was pregnant and like not even drinking that I was like yeah I just smell things yeah, this is just, just my life yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah I love that question I for me so I don't focus on, in the way that I communicate about wine, I don't focus with people if I'm trying to communicate about something, this smells like this, this tastes like this. And I know that's not what you asked, but it helps formulate where I'm going with this, which is the focus for me has always been the story, the etymology, the background, the historical elements, right? But later on, I started to understand in my own kind of, my historical, personal um, preferences, I guess, was I literally would not eat something until I'd smell it first. And I wanted to also build like a Rolodex of certain type of rock smells and tastes like this. And this kind of wood versus this kind of wood or peat moss or fill in the blank, whatever it is, certain flowers, certain spices. So having that ability to say, 
I know what that smells like. I've smelled and tasted that. That only helps further to understand what something is or is not in a wine. And I think the super tasters, the people who have like a unflappable sense of smell and sense of taste, it's a superpower in a lot of ways. I also have allergies. I suffer from pretty severe allergies, seasonal, from dust, from I'm allergic to basically life, anything that's alive, <laughs> you know, dogs, flowers, cats, hair of any kind. Um, I've wor- I take a pill every day to allow myself to still breathe. When I'm in my allergetic phase, which is like a couple days a year in LA, and when I travel to Austria, France, Germany, Australia at times, when I go to Oregon in June, don't go to fucking Oregon in June if you want to smell, <laughs> if you're me. Like I can't smell, I can't, I literally can't breathe. But other than that, my sense of smell is impeccable. Now during COVID, I've noticed it's kind of jumped back a little. I actually had one day, it wasn't COVID that I got, I got sick and I lost my sense of smell for one day and I got worried because I think a lot of us have had that moment. Yeah. And doing what we do, losing our sense of smell is like losing our sense of propriety in person and like it, it could be a really big problem. Thankfully, it came back. But I think my sense of smell and taste is very good. What I think supersedes that, like not like physically tasting something on my palate, I think my taste as a human being is what makes me good at my job. And this is something I've leaned into. Are you Rick Rubening right now? (laughs) I remember he got asked why. He got asked why he gets paid. I know exactly. For my sense of taste. (laughs) And no joke, like I've learned that if I think something's interesting or, or tastes good or the story's interesting, like... It turns out my taste is pretty fucking good. And I think it's okay to say that. I, my job has been to trim the fat and showcase things that inspire people. You're mm-hmm. curating, right? Yeah. It's highly yes. curated. Yeah. Yep. So, I, I'm, always, I'm with you. Yeah. I so I love smelling and tasting things, but I also love the like philosophical sense of taste and the curation. I think that's equally important in this, but not everyone has good taste, it turns out. <laughs> Or it's, taste well. I, or I do think that it's important to say that that is just as, if not way more important than just your sense of smell. Like I've had tastings with just servers who are like crazy super tasters and you're like, wow, whatever he said, like, right. that's it. You know, I defer. Like, that was great. But you have to have all the knowledge of the field that you're in mm-hmm. and know where that bottle fits in why is this winemaker and this bottle important in this story of wine? Right. And that's what you have. Find the context for it. Yeah, the context. And that's what matters. And and this is special because, and you need both things. Totally. That's something that you both have in common. I mean, it's so interesting. I mean, you you asked the questions to like athletes about, you know, what special gifts they have, but you, you two are at the top of your fields as well, so it's interesting to hear. But you know. I have not been a host on Som TV, and I, you know, yeah. Matthew, I, I was listening to you actually earlier tonight on a Som TV podcast. You were talking about the whole Rudy. Um, uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, Rudy, a <laughs> message to you, Rudy. <laughs> you were talking about the... Um, the guy just from, died movie. from the special, is, so... Passed away. Yeah. yeah. That's an homage. Yeah, it was nice. Anyway, it was really well put because you're framing this for people who may or may not know the story, but talking about wine to people who are interested in my wine but not have a huge background in it or might know a lot about it. And I thought, wow, like, I like the way you're talking about wine because... It's not just like for the experts or for the insiders, but it's to everyone. Everyone could listen. So I, I, I really appreciated that too. I feel like not only is it, you know, 
the curation and your knowledge and curiosity, but it's like how you're presenting, you know, it's accessible to people. Thank you. So that leads me to the next journey in your career, which is the step into owning a restaurant wine bar space. Yeah. Now, is that, we have some knowledge on that world. Yeah. But intimate. Did you feel like you had knowledge to share and you wanted to sort of give that knowledge to other people? What was the inspiration for you deciding going to the wine bar space? Yeah, I love that. Um, Never thought I would own a business. My mom is very entrepreneurial and has been her whole life. As we've gotten closer over time, I've learned about this and I I mimic that entrepreneurial spirit my mom has. I loved wine so much that I basically told my good friend who became my business partner, Dustin Lancaster, I said, after he confided in me, he was sick of working for other people. He didn't want to make money for other, you know, in some cases, owners who are not there every day and don't see how hard you work and don't see how hard it is to make that money for them. And, you know, you know, maybe don't get the praise or you don't get just, you know, thanks for that or well done or whatever. He goes, I'm going to open my own wine bar, sick of making other people money, but I'm only going to do it if you do it with me. And this is in like November of 2009. I was working at Silver Lake Wine. I'd been there for three years. I was trying to figure out what my next step would be. I didn't know. And I go... Fuck yeah. And I told him, I'm in. You tell me when and where. Locked and loaded, ready to go. Had I ever thought of that before? No, never. Never thought we'd have a wine bar. Never thought I'd go do... No, I knew I had a lot to share. Silver Lake Wine, I learned a lot about community. I learned a lot about being a part of a community. How to follow up with your customers, make sure they feel heard making sure that you're making great recommendations and actually listening to what they're looking for versus, well, I got these 10 cases I'm making more money on, got to sell those because the guy from Southern told me I'd get a free trip to fill in the blank. Like, obviously we didn't do that at Silver Lake Wine, but the point was in the wine world, a lot of times people are selling you what they want you to buy versus listening to you and getting the right wine into your hands. And so the wine cask mentality was very... We want people to buy expensive wine. We want to obviously share a certain echelon. Silver Lake Wine was all about what are they looking for? Get them the best thing for what they're looking for. If they want to spend 30 bucks, get them selling for 25. If they want to spend 100, get them selling for 70. They're going to come back. You'll build community that way. And, you know, I was their second employee. It was early on. I started working there in 2006, wow. end of 06. And so then we go open Covell. Dustin worked at Cafe Stella, mainstay in the Silver Lake neighborhood. Great French restaurant. He was the bar manager there. And he had a flock of people who would come the nights he worked and just would be in his presence. And I'm, I'm in your hands basically was the approach. No one wanted to look at a menu. No one needed to look at the wine list. They just said, whatever Dustin's pouring, I'm drinking. I had that same trust with the people at Silver Lake Wine. They'd say, I need a gift for 50 bucks for a person who's a director, went to France last week. What do you recommend that'll make me look good? Or my, um, my fiance is making raclette tonight. What's the perfect white wine for a hundred dollars or $50 or $20. And we'd make people not feel uncomfortable if they're like, I can only afford $15 tonight or $12 tonight. whatever it is, all that stuff, we had their trust. And so he had the trust with his clientele, which were very similar to my clientele being in Silver Lake also. And we just said, fuck it, we're going to go do a place with no wine list because they trusted us. That was the designs, no wine list. From the beginning, that was your idea? Was there ever an idea where you entertained, let's have a wine list? Or from the beginning, you're like, no wine list, have them trust us. Dustin is an aesthetic guy especially. He's got an excellent taste in aesthetic and he's really good at naming things. He loves to do an entire like, you know, Pinterest like board of what everything's going to look like and feel like. And he's, it's a talent of his. He had these unbelievable repurposed windows he found and he really wanted the windows hung in the same fucking place they are today. 13 years later, they haven't moved. I think we added a third one. 
We didn't take them away. And those windows had these little small glass panes in between. And we he thought, oh, we'll offer flights. And that's the one place something will be written. People can say, I want this wine or that wine or whatever. And when we opened, and you don't know until you open, but night one, we had like 500 people come. We were doing business plans for like, what if five people or 10 people come a night? 500 fucking people showed up night one. And we're like, well, that's not going to work. Fuck that. <laughs> so it became kind of like a... I know it's almost like a joke that it's even there. Again, the aesthetic is beautiful. It, right. it fits that kind of post-punk, old school, like worker vibe that it has there. And, you know, the old, I don't know, industrial, very worker person, but also hip vibe that it has. And so other than that, the point was to have, and no joke for almost two years, we never had the same wine twice. The point was to have something new every time. We buy three cases of it, sell out of it, move on. And I thought I was insane for that. And no joke until maybe you have a muscle memory on this wine. Chateau Flotis Negrette from um, Fronton, France. <laughs> that wine was the first one that people, if we didn't have it, they would leave and not come back. So I was like, well, fuck, I can't lose business over this. So I brought that wine back a second time. And then it became a mainstay for like a decade. Hmm. Other than that, in the first, no joke, two years, we had no wine twice. And it made my friends go crazy because they're like, yeah, but I was by the glass and what the fuck? And it's so good. And I'm like, well, Catherine, make, make something does, else. Catherine does the same thing. I mean, Catherine loves the, the dynamism of, you know, the by the glass list at Esther's. And Randall now helps run a lot of that. But I mean, we talk about that a lot. We want it to be feel dynamic. We want yeah, it to feel like it's changing all the time. that's what I like. Yeah. Totally. I want to have, what's your favorite wine? Whatever I had last night. New it's experiences. Like, <laughs> yeah, keep it. Like, and there's so many wines out there. It should be whatever I just had. Yes. There's so many wines. I think it's been, I'm sure you realized during the shutdown, during the first part of the pandemic, the pandy. Oh, wait. Some people drink like that and some people don't. They want the Oh, they same want they want two cases of the same wine. <laughs> and you're like, "Oh." And do I get a 20% discount if I buy five <laughs> cases of it? Okay. And sure. then other people want a mixed case. You choose yeah. and you're like, "I'm in the happy place," you know, but it was it is astounding to see how differently people drink. The way I look at it, I don't mean to cut you off, but some people listen to the same album Every day. Some people watch the same TV show when they get home. To de I mean, look, if you want to watch every night Seinfeld or Friends or Ridiculousness or whatever it is, and that's your place you go to break down whatever you did that day and like become, you know, basically into your orbit or come out of orbit, I get it. But there's so many TV shows and music, so many albums are put out every day, so many songs to listen to, so many different restaurants to go to. I don't want the same pasta dish every night. I need a different thing. And not everyone lives like that. Some people drink the same soda, the same sparkling water, the same, they use the same butter. They use the same salt. They won't try anything new. I still want your money. <laughs> but like, what are we doing? Like there's seven days in a week and think of how many days that is in a year. And like, come on, 365. We have a lot of listeners outside of LA, but I can't stress enough how important Covell means to Los Angeles the wine culture in LA it, it truly is an institution I agree it put wine in a serious category for LA it was a wine bar that people would travel to from other places people would land at LAX they knew they were in LA and they would go to Covell I mean it yeah. that it was a destination I can't tell and you I, how humbling that is too but I I, it, I think that's we, we really experience that really fantastic you know like what you did for the wine scene and to have it be you know LA is such a place of 
vibe and like what things look like on the outside and wine lists that, you know, speak of classics and pedigree and California and to not have a wine list and to just trust talking to. No one wants to read. No one is a lot. And people were like, yeah, I'm coming back for it. So and also like every wine event was there, (laughs) like all the wine wine people were always there. So it's also um, tough because that, I mean, the the no menu, the sort of let's communicate our thoughts as a guest can be intimidating. So it really, uh, as a person who is not on the level that you all are on, and I know when you say, what are you into? It really asks a lot of Well, the, it does because a lot of people are say, like, mm, I yeah. don't really like to talk about wine. I sort of just point to the mail well, back. One, one thing <laughs> we talk about on our podcast a lot is for people who are learning more about wine is if you love the bottle, take a picture of it. Like, Always. You know, you, you know your memory sucks. Your phone remembers Just 100%. Just show it to keep people. Your, keep a catalog. Like keep a catalog. And, you know, then you don't yes. even have yeah. to say Reference. anything. It's just easy. Yeah. But, you know, I'm thinking about this so much and having seen all the things that you've been doing since then, like when you build a place like that, you are the person. You are the person behind the bar or your partner or your one or two people that you trust so hard to staff that. It was tough. Like, I mean, so hard. In the early days when it was Dustin and I behind the bar every day for, I think he was there every day for a year and I was there every day. And he was still there every day, but he didn't have to bartend after that because he started opening other things. I stayed behind the bar. I worked seven days a week, I think, for 18 months. And then I would like once in a while go on a date or like go to sleep or something. And then I worked there basically until I started going to New York once in a while. And then we, when I opened Augustine, which was in, when Dustin and I opened Augustine 2015. So, I mean, I was working at Covell every day, three years, three and a half years. It was, uh, it was a lot. But then you see, you understand like why, oh, it's so exciting to be in those spaces. They're so energized. They yeah. need you. And then you're like, and now I have to move on. Well, and what's <laughs> hard, something else. what's really hard is kind of, what we were mentioning earlier with the text thing, like, Okay, so I used to be there every second and people got used to that. And then, oh, Matthew's not here tonight, but he knows what I like. And what I want people to realize is, so Matthew, in this case, I'm speaking in third person, but Matthew is a concept. Matthew is a person who makes a wine program and then has people that Matthew and Dustin as a team hired and trained and gave them the tools to make you know what you like also. And I get that not everywhere you go has that potential. It's like it's service has been tough for the last 10 years. It's been hard, LA especially. That said, there is this elegance to people are probably going to borrow from or learn from whatever the cadence or style is within a certain ownership or a certain style that people have at a restaurant or wine bar. Like if you worked with David Rossoff in any of the incarnations, you learn a style from David Rossoff. Mm -hmm. That's why people love that guy. He's a genius. And those who like sometimes people, it's oil and water for some, but those who get it and understand hospitality learn that the customer actually is the one that matters. Let the audience know David Rossoff's spots. So you can go to Bar Maruno which is in Silver Lake. They have a little shop next to it, I think called Rapido, mm-hmm. if I'm not mistaken. And the name eludes me, so maybe you have to do it in post. But there's a Ricardo Zarate restaurant that they all co-own together next door that's a Peruvian. I don't remember the name that's off the top okay. of my head. We'll put that in the show notes. Silver Lake. Yes, in Silver Lake. But he's a Jedi service guy and also an amazing wine mind. And so the point is like if someone works with, and like Carolyn Stein, I put her in that category. Carolyn's obviously not at AOC every night, but AOC's packed. Right. Because people put their trust in what her and Suzanne have done. Suzanne Go and her chef partner, what they've done, what they've built supersedes them. And it's hard for me trying to be someone who is trying to build something 
similar where set it up and then get to go open other places and be me. And I know I can't clone myself and I know that my friends want to go there and see me there, but like there's seven days in a week and I got to sleep and like, I got to be places and you can still get a glass of wine there because I built the wine program. Like you're going to like whatever it is. Cause we, we picked it. Catherine picked the wines too. If she's not there guys, it's, I worked at domain LA before right. opening Esther's and there were people who would put their head in the door and look. And if Jill wasn't there, they would walk out because they love the way they either trusted her yeah. recommendation or they love the connection that they had. And I get it. You just couldn't sway them. Yeah. You or Jesse or any other person who worked there no. probably just couldn't. Yeah. And no matter what, hopefully those same people are now realizing the ones that they were snubbing are the ones who have gone on to take over the wine world. Let's hope. Let's hope they see that. Because another thing I learned is we have to empower those who work with us. I didn't get it when I was younger because I was too busy and uh, there was just a lot on my plate. But Further into my career, I started to give so much to my employees and empower them in such a different way that I almost made up for the lack of it in the early part of my career. And don't get me wrong, we gave people tools for success, but like I learned a lot about making sure people felt a sense of propriety and ownership. And even though they don't own it, you want them to be able to tell your story, communicate what you had in mind, and not feel like you're watching over their shoulder, gonna take their job away from them. I had jobs where I felt kind of on edge. I didn't ever want that for my employees. I think that too. And you, then you start to see them for the people that they are and like, wow, that, you know, I love going around the room and everyone saying, okay, what's your pocket wine today? And like, wow, do you see he leads with passion? He leads with knowledge. Mm -hmm. She leads with like her pairings or whatever. You know, everyone has this different thing. Yeah. It's not all going to be the same. Like you guys have to work together and... And make this happen, you know? It's a symphony. You're not clones. No. Right. <laughs> you know, you all have, you have your, your way of doing it. Patchwork. It's about getting someone else excited about what you're excited about. Yeah. So before we move on to some of the latest developments in your life, I do want to talk about, and this relates to Catherine as well, all the success you had at Covell, Food and Wine Summit of the Year 2013, Open Augustine. But I'd love to know, because we want to learn from you, what are some of the things that you learned from Covell that you implemented into Augustine and things that you wanted to change. Yeah. What kind of evolution was that like in your process of opening a new place? Thank you for that one. There were a few important things. Number one, we opened in a totally different neighborhood. So Covell is kind of hard to replicate, I think. We've had the idea back years ago, Dustin and I almost did it in New York, chose not to do that. And then especially when the hotel came around, when Dustin opened Hotel Covell, we thought, oh, we can do Hotel Covell and the bar it just was really hard to it, giving it its own one standalone thing, I think made more sense. Obviously that's not my decision anymore. We'll see if they do that. But the time I had the decision or the, the, the help to decide on that, uh, we chose not to do it, but trying to do a new wine bar concept with a, a third partner, we put it in a very upscale neighborhood. Sherman Oaks is like Silver Lake is a bunch of people who are all trying to be someone trying to become something musicians, artists, people who are writers, directors, first ADs on films, their script supervisors, all their fucking bosses live in Sherman Oaks who have been someone for 30 years and they want you to know they're someone. And by the way, they can afford to be someone. Yeah. And you know what? I've got 90 minutes till the babysitter has to be relieved and I want to spend $1,000 in 90 minutes to make it happen go. <laughs> what do you mean my steak's not ready? My steak's not medium rare in 20 minutes, 30 minutes. So we added more food because we had to. We had to become a restaurant without wanting to. Is that 
location dependent or was it also because of things that you learned just from the influx of cash you were generating at Covell? Like we need, we need a bigger menu. Both. Yeah. We, when we opened Covell day one, we didn't have any food at all. And we used to let people order pizza or bring an umami burger because the second umami burger was across the street from us. And then like week two, we're like, we got it. We need food. <laughs> yeah. So we implemented a cheese program and added some salads and it's grown. And I, I even saw they just did a refresh. and It looks really cool. So Augustine, out of the gates, we came out with more food. We actually had a kitchen in that location. But even what we thought was enough was not enough for that neighborhood. Next thing we knew, we're making like, you know, duck and steak and handmade pastas and like Michelin star restaurants. And our first chef, Evan Algori is great, amazing chef mind. He worked at Danielle in New York and a couple other Michelin star style places. So he brought that ability to a small little wine bar. So that was one. Number two, and subsequent restaurant bars, whatever I opened after, always had a fucking printed wine list. All Always. Mm. Because... No matter how cool the Covell thing is for some, you referenced earlier, it can be daunting or it can be hard for someone who maybe doesn't want to talk or whatever. Turns out no one knows what any of the shit it says unless they do. And like out of 100 people, five of them maybe know. And they mostly go from right to left from price to maybe what grape it is. So it's not really an informed way to decide what to drink. But for 50 people who loved the Build Your Own Adventure have this conversation, sometimes someone just wants a Malbec. And again, Mm -hmm. I said it earlier, I still want your money. So... We printed a wine list. We could offer that experience of, do you want to take a look? Would you like some time to, you know, do you have any questions? But the big deal we learned, and and Dave, our third partner, was a big proponent of, which was the vintage wine thing. Augustine matters in a global context of wine because unlike Burns Steakhouse, which has been open for 100 years and has acres of cellar underground with wines that they bought in 1930 and are still there, and they still haven't sold out of them, they have so much wine, they don't even know how much wine they have. We were the small little place that the goal was to open vintage wine and show people, first off, A, it's not bad, hasn't gone bad. And we wanted to show people also they could afford it because it, it's really a, a wealthy person's endeavor a lot of times. And we wanted to make it approachable. So there was wine from like 1940, 1950, 1960, 18, late 1800s, sometimes 1970s, 1980s, and starting at like 15 bucks a glass, 18 bucks a glass. And you didn't Coravin? Or you did? Up until about three years ago, I did not like the way the Coravin worked. Mm -hmm. I thought, and I've become friends with the founder. Greg's incredible. I love what him and his team have done. Now, early on, I had some serious doubts because I'm someone, again, who has pretty good taste. And I remember using the Coravin and being like, you know, you're poking a hole in something that already is porous and you're putting literally a fucking hole in something. And the one thing Air's job to do is is oxidize and get into crevices and shit. Like, sorry, medical people, but you're putting a hole in it. And they're like, yeah, but inert gas. I'm like, no, 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 no. It's a fucking hole. It wasn't there. So early on, it, for me, it didn't work, in my opinion. And I had muscle memory on, like, I would buy a bottle, have, use someone else's Coravin, put it in my fridge, and then six months later, taste it, and the shit's oxidized. I'm sorry. It's just fucking oxidized. I know that because I'm a professional wine person. Does Jimmy from the corner know that? Maybe not. But now the technology is so much better. I would probably have a different mindset today. But, you know, in 2015, I I talked all my partners out of Corvan. Would it have made us a little more money? Maybe. Would we have wasted as much wine? Probably not. But we weren't ruining corks. We weren't. I mean, it. You're probably serving people better wine, too, because you're not just you have to taste it. We tasted everything all the time. And yeah. the Coravin has some magical purposes. I don't want to go too far on that. But like you can check if a wine's corked before you bring it to a dinner and save yourself the embarrassment. You can have three glasses of wine that are all different things that night. 
that's pretty cool. For a wine rep, they can use a bottle for two week, three weeks a month, saving money for the business and not wasting samples. But like for a, a wine by the glass program, uh, unless you're opening super baller stuff that you don't want to pop the cork on, I didn't see a use for it in 2015, 16. And then in the last three years, it's gotten so much better. And so, like I said, I, I've come full circle on it now and I've actually become friends with the team. So, but no, we didn't use it at all early on. Not at all. I, Dave would have his own personal Corvan that he would like look to see if I was watching him and he'd be embarrassed if he was using it. And I'm like, you can do whatever you want. Just don't serve our wine for the business with it. Cause it's, it just didn't work then. It didn't, especially for vintage wine. I mean, it would have, you put a hole in a vintage cork. First off, that's not a good idea. And second off, the wine's going to oxidize overnight for sure. Did you feel like you were serving wildly different wines between the two spots. We always talk about the West Side yeah. wine drinkers versus Silver Lake. I mean, there's, yeah. there's pockets where everyone's going to drink different wines. Well, more adventurous, less adventurous, more classic. Yeah. To talk to the West Side, East Side thing first, there's a lot less variance between, like, let's say Santa Monica, Venice, and now Silver Lake, Echo Park, Los Feliz. They're actually quite similar now. Oh, that's interesting. Now, mm-hmm. Sherman Oaks, 2015, everyone wanted Silver Oak Cabernet, and they wanted whatever famous oaky buttery Chardonnay. And like we would buy whatever Sonoma Coutrere vintage bottle we can get our hands on. And to make it interesting for us, we try to find our birth years or like something cool like that, you know? So we weren't like, here's another, uh, you know, Sonoma Coutrere. But like Covell, I remember the days where selling $15 was a problem. If someone was going to get a $15 glass of wine, you were like, oh, are they going to get mad at me? Like, is this too expensive? I mean, Augustine in the end, I don't, I'm now I'm sure there's nothing under 12, 13, 14 bucks at all, let alone under 15. And like I went to a place, I stopped by a place this evening and there was nothing under 20 a glass at all. Not one, nothing. Nothing under 20. No. And oh, place. that's more common nowadays wow. than it used to be. It's well, true though. Shit's expensive. Now. Yeah, I mean, it you, is. you guys have a lot to offer at your, at, at, at uh, Esther's and you, you're very, equitable in what you offer, but not everyone sees it that way. They see it as I'm losing sales if I don't sell a $20 glass. Mm, it's also like the, you know, inflation is nuts. Yeah. That's a lot, a big part of it. Yeah. Like I get emails every week that's like, well, our prices are going up. So. And we went through that big tariff issue where yep. French mm-hmm. wine and Spanish wine were a nightmare. And yep. Not a lot of prices, I mean, prices didn't come down after that went away. It's not like they're like, oh, we, so we can lower the price down? No, you just pass, you got to pass it along somewhere. It's mm-hmm. tough. And usually it comes out of the owner's pockets, which is another thing no one talks about. It's one of the reasons I got out of ownership. You can't just raise the prices, you know, 50% and expect customers not to complain. It's hard. It's true. And Matthew is correct. It is very difficult to run restaurants in this day and age. And for next week, we continue our conversation and learn about what he's up to now, what he's been up to since Covell and Augustine. And it's very compelling. The world that he's playing in, I think, is on the rise. It's a huge movement. And I uh, hope you stay tuned for part two of our interview with Matthew Kaner. All right, that's it. That's it for episode 94 of The Long Finish. Episode 94 is in the books. Catherine, where can they find you in The Long Finish on social media? You can find me at Catherine Wild Coker on Instagram and The Long Finish at the long finish on instagram you can find me on twitter and instagram at tug coker come back for part two with matthew caner next week until then everybody be happy be healthy and happy drink ciao